Hello and welcome to another episode of Ed Choice Chats. Our legal podcast today will be with our VP of Legal Affairs, Leslie Heiner, who's also the head of our Legal Defense and Education Center, otherwise known as LDEC. So thank you for joining us, Leslie. Thank you, Jen. All right. Well, we are going to kick it off. We have a huge agenda of cases to talk about. There's a lot going on in the legal world, but the big kahuna is obviously the Espinoza case. And Leslie, you got to go out to the Supreme Court and be in the courtroom during the oral arguments. So tell us about that. I am very happy to tell you about my day in the court. I've been a lawyer for a long time, and lawyers talk about going to the U.S. Supreme Court. But, you know, few actually go there. We just hear the stories about it. I'd just like to tell anyone who's listening to this podcast that if you have the opportunity to go to the U.S. Supreme Court and sit there and listen to the oral arguments in in any kind of case, it is well worth the effort. What I gained from that experience was some real insight into the justices and their questions and why they asked questions that they did and, and the intensity of their questions and their body language. All of that was really helpful to me in trying to understand what may be going on in their minds in the case. And so with that, as to Espinoza, I will say that I was not surprised by some of the first questions that were asked by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in particular, Justice Sotomayor. Also, these were, happy to report, these were questions that our uh, person giving oral argument, Dick Comer, had practiced. So some questions were predictable. The, The law can be fairly clear in this area of First Amendment. But then we got into some questions that were not quite as predictable when Justice Breyer began asking questions. And for a while at the court, the questions turned around funding of private schools. Now, these... The Espinoza program and and any kind of voucher program does not fund private schools. They have never funded private schools. These programs fund parents who then make a decision about how they want to use that education funding for their child, which private school, uh, or in the case of ESAs, which kind of educational services the parent wants to access. It wasn't until... Justice Alito spoke up, and he started asking questions along that line. But then Justice Kavanaugh was the one who came in and saved the day. (laughs) Now, Justice Kavanaugh is new. So from my perspective, I didn't really know exactly how he would be on this issue. It was predicted that he would be favorable, but really, until you actually see a judge in action and hear the questions, you don't really know. But Justice Kavanaugh swooped in and said, wait a minute, so doesn't this money actually go directly to the parents? Then the parents are the ones who make the decision of whether to send their child to a private secular school or a private religious school. And the answer, of course, is yes. And thank you very much for saying that. So I'm also happy to report that Justice Kavanaugh clearly understands the process of these programs and and was able to say so very succinctly and and that was very helpful to us. Now there's one other part about oral argument that I think it's important for people to know. The person who argued on behalf of the parents on the Espinoza side in this case was Dick Comer from the Institute for Justice. Now Dick Comer 
is retired. <laughs> well, sort of, right? He came out of retirement just for this. He did. He came out of retirement just for this. And that really speaks to his love for the mission and his loyalty to the parents and, and to this cause. So I, I would be remiss if not to say a big, big thank you goes out to Dick Comer, who was really exceptional in an oral argument. In the close of oral argument, he summed it up by saying very clearly, this is a program, these school choice programs, empower parents. And that's the point. If the parents choose a religious school, it's up to them. And they should have that choice if that's the choice that they have decided is best for their children and best for their family. Dick was able to state that point to the court very clearly. Uh, so I felt pretty good about that. Good. Well, and he's, I mean, an amazing orator, and uh, we were lucky to have him come out of uh, retirement. And, you know, we'd all, always want to say a big thank you to the Institute for Justice, longtime partners of ours here at Ed Choice, right? and working on school choice litigation for, for the last couple decades, really. Yeah. So this case we've talked before a lot about could be big for school choice. It could be very narrowly ruled. And we will know in the next, let's see, it's, it's mid-February right now, so we're going to know in the next three months or so how the court decides. Did you get any indication? Because the, the media reports were pretty fair and balanced that, you know, the, the justices were, were mm-hmm. asking pointed questions, didn't really tip their hands. So do you have a feeling on how this is going to go, or are we just going to wait with bated breath? <laughs> well, as I tell, um, tell everyone, and going back to my days when I was litigating in private practice, I used to tell my clients, Every time you go into court, it's a 50-50 crapshoot. Maybe you'll win, maybe you won't. And I, I mean, I actually feel no different about any court. But in this case, I will say that based on the questions, and I'd say even more than that, based on what you could tell was the justice's understanding or lack of understanding of certain issues, many attorneys who watch the court on a regular basis think that we will get some kind of a win out of this. It's possible that Justice Breyer may be supportive, or at least I think he may write his own opinion because he he raised a, a separate point that he was pretty strong on, which was great. Justice Kagan, I think, could go either way on this case. Justice Thomas, as usual, did not ask any questions. The Chief Justice, as usual, said he prefers a narrow decision. <laughs> uh, so no surprises there. Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh, um, you know, they they really got a little bit emotional about some of the points in our favor, I'd say. Don't think that Justice Ginsburg is going to be with us. Although her questions were really good. You know, she's a good jurist. And probably a big no for Justice Sotomayor. So when you do the math on all of that, I think that it's more likely than not that we'll get a favorable decision. Now, the bigger question is what kind of decision? Will it be narrow, narrowly tailored to Montana-specific? I don't think so. I think that it will go beyond Montana because the case, the question that has been presented to the court is a question that would apply to all states. It's a much larger constitutional principle, so I think it goes beyond Montana. But what everyone's wondering is whether it will be a big enough decision to say that all of these Blaine Amendments, 
all of the other amendments and state constitutions that limit the ability of private religious entities to essentially participate in public life, will those be overturned or considered to be in violation of the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment? The answer to that question is the one that, that we await. But that said, I, I've been trying to tell people this, that it's very possible that this ruling could go that far and suddenly we'll see a lot of opportunity in, in a lot more states. Or not. Right. <laughs> or, or not. <laughs> it's a 50-50 crapshoot. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't think you know, planning for victory is necessarily the, the best course of action, but rather planning for a decision going either way is probably more sensible. One of the things that came out of the hearing, which I think was really important, is that when the justices were talking about school choice, they were not talking about limited school choice. They were talking about school choice for all children. They didn't talk about school choice being limited by uh, by a, a child's parent's income. Uh, they didn't talk about school choice being limited by geography, where you live, or, or any of that. It was a very pure conversation about all children in the country. And that's something that I think will hold through the decision. So for anyone who is thinking about this case, thinking about the possibilities in their own states going forward, I would encourage people to think about this in the most universal way, that every child in your state has certain rights under the Constitution, like we do, we adults do as well, but the ruling may well address itself to all of the children in the state being able to have an equal option to access any school that the parent determines is right for them. And that would be, I mean, that would be remarkable and what we here at EdChoice have fought for for the past 25 years. And it honestly sets us apart from a lot of the other national organizations and that we are promoting universal access to educational opportunity, regardless of how much you make, how much your parents make, where you live, where you're assigned. So that would be, right. but I think the one thing that we have learned in this movement, and I think it's probably a, a bit of a cautionary tale to anyone who is looking at Espinoza or who has looked at past decisions like Janice and said, oh, once the court rules, everything is going to go this way or that way. It's mm -hmm. very slow moving. Right. And the fact that the court even took this case is significant and that they talked about universality or they didn't talk about it being uh, only applicable in special cases. So, you know, I think right. what it sounds like the messages to folks out there is, you know, don't expect anything earth shattering. And even if we get something that's earth shattering and beneficial for the movement, it's going to continue to take years, if not decades, to kind of get choice where it needs to be for all families. That's right. I'm sure there will be work for all of us to do afterwards, regardless of how that decision is written. So maybe that's the message for people today. What we should all be planning on is, oh, let's say along about July 1, after we know we'll have a decision by then, let's all plan to get together and decide our next steps. That is for certain. That's what we should do. Yeah, and, and the reality is there are every day that goes by more and more organizations, groups, parent groups that are advocating for 
educational opportunity. So I like it. Let's let's plan a good old summer. Maybe we can have a barbecue. We can all get together, talk <laughs> like about that. Espinoza. You know, I'm saying that now because it's snowing and gross outside in mid-February here in Indiana. Um, no, I think I think that's that's a great message to take away. And you know, in the in the vein of slow moving things, I feel like we should move to our next topic, which is also out in D.C. And that's something you've been really intimately involved in the last year and a half or so, which is the IRS guidance on charitable giving. And I think this is a story that really, I mean, you've been quoted in many national publications, but the story itself seems to have slid under the radar and the potentially devastating effect that the IRS guidance on charitable giving has been having and could continue to have on scholarship programs at the state level that rely on charitable contributions. So tell us a little bit about how you're continuing to be involved in that and what, what's next in that fight. Yes, sometimes the wheels of justice move very slowly and the wheels of the Department of Treasury can move even slower. So this issue first arose in the summer of 2018 when the Department of Treasury said that they were going to propose a new rule that would limit the federal deductibility of contributions that people make to nonprofits when those people also get some kind of a state tax credit for having given to those nonprofits. Now, notice I didn't say specifically scholarship groups because this tax rule also it applies across the board. So, for example, it will apply to those states where they have tax credit scholarship programs because people who give to those programs also get some kind of a state tax credit. Sometimes that's for 100% of their donation. Other places, it's 50% of the donation. That varies state by state. But this also applies, for example, in Georgia to a program that they have to encourage people to give money to rural hospitals. This has become a great way for people to give charitable contributions and support those rural hospitals, and it's been working very well in Georgia for many years. This also applies to land trusts, the Nature Conservancy. Many of the land preservation trusts that you'll find across the country that preserve the most beautiful areas in communities and in states, they also typically will have a, a similar kind of program. And in each one of these programs, the thing to keep in mind is that the reason why someone who gives a charitable contribution to this nonprofit, the reason why they would get a state tax credit is because the legislature has determined that the mission of those nonprofits has real value, that it is a public good, that everyone in that state is served well when those nonprofits thrive. So the legislature has determined that it's in the best interests of the citizens of the state to incentivize people to give to those nonprofits. That is a state-based decision. One of the biggest problems with the rule that's been proposed by the Department of Treasury is that this is a situation where the feds have come in to say, well, we're changing our minds about those kinds of contributions now. And now we're going to say that you just can't do that anymore. Notwithstanding the fact that many of these nonprofits have been in place and these tax credits at the state level have been in place for generations. So first of all, this is the problem with the federal government coming in 
and trying to undo what state governments have determined to be in their own self-interest to the citizens of those states. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the Department of Treasury has also determined that if you get a state tax credit for your contribution, that that's just the same thing as if you're a donor and you decide to give money to some nonprofit that's having a spaghetti dinner. And so you go to the spaghetti dinner and you give your money and you hear them talk about their program. But then when on your federal tax return to get the charitable deduction, then you deduct the, the value of that dinner. That's fine. Well, the Department of Treasury is now saying that you also cannot claim your state tax credit. <laughs> that, that your state tax credit is somehow the very same as getting a spaghetti dinner. Or you might get a hat from the nonprofit that you've donated to, or maybe one of their books. It's not the same thing, and their rule contradicts about 40 to 50 years of decisions in the, in the courts on this point. So by trying to change this rule in, in this way, in both ways, trying to overrule what states have determined to be good for the states, and by trying to make a charitable contribution the, the same as a spaghetti dinner for crying out loud, First, it has immediate consequences. It has long-term consequences. The long-term consequences are that it, that it overturns a lot of tax law, and it really will leave states in, in the lurch on knowing what to do next. But the short-term consequences have been quite dire for families. We are expecting that there will be hundreds, thousands of children who will not be able to get their scholarships during this next school year. That varies a bit from state to state, but the biggest problem is that people who regularly contribute to scholarship granting organizations, many have been told by their tax people who do their tax returns, you know, maybe you should hold up on those contributions because we don't know what the IRS and Department of Treasury are doing. We just don't have a clue. So maybe you should put your money someplace else for, for a couple of years. And that's happened. And that has happened. The impact is pretty dramatic. It's just about as, as bad as you can think. So what some scholarship granting organizations have done is they've reached out to their donors to say, we understand that, yeah, Department of Treasury is just a mess and nobody knows what they're doing and the only thing that we've seen is not good. But please reconsider. Please consider these parents and these children who are so desperate for these scholarships and they just really cannot afford to lose them. Now, in those cases, the scholarship granting organizations have been successful in, in bringing back some people. But in other cases, people just haven't been able haven't been able to give. Yeah. Uh, so we are facing a huge problem, and here at EdChoice, we're, we're fighting against this rule. This next week, I'm going to the IRS. They're going to hold testimony on this rule, and I'll be testifying against it. There may be some litigation coming as well. That's certainly in the mix. So this issue is not over yet. This issue that started in the summer of 2018. Ago, yep. <laughs> It's not over, 
Um, but I, I could promise one thing, though, that I'm going to continue to fight this rule, fight against what Treasury is doing, you know, as long as it takes. There, there's just too much, too much at risk here for, for parents and these kids. Yeah, and these kids wind up being, you know, these scholarship granting organizations and the kids that they help wind up being collateral damage because, That's correct correct. me if I'm wrong, but I believe the, the intent, oh, so often the federal government has a lofty intent when they do things like this right. and they wanted to prevent if i'm not mistaken extraordinarily wealthy donors from you know double dipping in the, in their words and getting all kinds of tax credits for these major contributions but what they actually have done has had a chilling effect on incredibly local programs that are helping families that's right yeah and that's, that's frustrating, exactly right. you know and that's but i mean yeah. i think this is this is this example probably even more so than espinoza is a great one to showcase the work that you're doing here for, for LDEC, for the Legal Defense and Education Center, because for a lot of groups, this is, again, a, an issue that hasn't quite gotten to that top tier because it's really complicated. Right. And you kind of have to go out there and get in the mix and understand. I mean, God bless you for taking on tax code and understanding <laughs> all that. Uh, yeah. I avoided tax law in law school, but uh, you've you've gotten a later in life course in it. Yes, self taught. True. <laughs> it's um, true. But yeah, I mean, this is this is a really important issue, and so we'll definitely look for an update the next time we get together on on where that rule stands. So yeah, I mean, lots going on in D.C., and we've got a lot going on in the states. Those we do those laboratories of democracy are uh, you know they're all over the place. Some they're good, all some. Some not so great for school choice, and I think we'll probably uh, start with um, what's going on down in the great state of Tennessee lately. You uh, recently put out a statement they're experiencing some, some litigation in their recently passed but as yet not operational ESA slash voucher program. So bring us up to date a little bit if you can. I know it's a bit of a moving target, but what the latest is there. So Tennessee passed this program fairly recently, and they decided that they had an ability to start the program a little sooner than they had planned, you know, good for them. There's been a high demand for this program, which is what has moved them to, to get things started as quickly as possible. But the law itself applies to children who are in those school districts where they have been at the lowest academic levels and they've been there for, for a long time. As it turns out, those two areas are in Shelby County, which is the Memphis area, and Metro Nashville in those two areas. Those two areas are, as they say, quote-unquote, targeted only because the academics there have been just so dreadfully low, and that's where kids need the most help. But Folks in Metro Nashville and in Shelby in, in Memphis, what they're claiming in court is that this violates a constitutional provision that they have in Tennessee that says that the state legislature cannot target a certain area or a certain city for legislation. The truth of the matter is the only reason why it's those two is because the, the academics are, are so poor there. If they weren't, if the academic were the lowest in Chattanooga, let's say, then, then kids in Chattanooga would be able to access this program. So this is really just, it's a fact-based situation, and, and they just happen to be in those facts. Nonetheless, they filed the litigation. I'm sure this is one of those things that will probably go on for a long time, I'm guessing. So 
Sorry, listeners, but we'll probably be talking about this for some time. And then there have been some other developments in Tennessee, too, where people are trying to examine the programs and pick it apart. And so I think you're going to see a lot of the people trying to pick it apart, trying to make things look as bad as possible, thinking that that will position them well in litigation before the court. I don't think that's true, but people can't help themselves sometimes. No, they can't. Yeah, so that's the situation we're in in Tennessee. So that's just starting. So truly, check back with us for updates. Yeah, and and hopefully we can, you know, set aside the litigation and the politics of all this and put those families first. But as as you know, you've been in this movement far longer than I have, and I've been in it long enough to know that oftentimes that doesn't happen. So... No, no, well, sadly, that's true. The grown-ups will fight, and the, maybe the kids will get what uh, the opportunities they deserve once we get our, our fighting done. Well, I mean, moving along to so, some, some slightly happier news out of Connecticut, because it feels like sometimes on these podcasts we don't have that much good <laughs> news to share with our listeners. But uh, so, the, so parents in Hartford actually got a, a pretty, pretty big legal victory recently in terms of accessing schooling opportunities there. So can you tell us a little bit about that and, and also what it means statewide in Connecticut? Yes, the Connecticut had a very unusual situation. So they were under a desegregation order, much like many states that have desegregation orders that go back generations now. The courts retain their jurisdiction over those cases. And so what's happened is that in Hartford, they enacted a law that put quotas in place for magnet schools. And in particular, in Hartford, there was a certain percentage of Asian and white children that had to be in each magnet school. But as it turned out, for a lot of these magnet schools, the Asian kids and white kids, they might apply, but not at those numbers. So the result was that there'd be these long waiting lists of kids who were Hispanic or black kids, and they couldn't get in yeah. because of this quota, even though there were empty seats. It was just a ridiculous situation. In some cases, they even closed the magnet school rather than filling the seats with these kids who really wanted to get into these magnet schools, which in Hartford are really, really good schools. So it was just a huge injustice, just just enormous. So some of the parents of those kids who were locked out of those schools, notwithstanding the fact there were empty seats and plenty of room for the kids to go in, they brought this litigation and the result was that they negotiated a settlement, <laughs> which is to say they won. So that segregation order was lifted, and now these kids will have the opportunity, all the kids will have the opportunity to attend these magnet schools. Now, there's a second lawsuit that applies to the entire state because Connecticut made the really poor decision of first enacting the law for Hartford and then enacting the law for the whole state, not great thinking on their part, but nonetheless, it was really good that they negotiated with these parents, reached an accommodation. Pacific Legal Foundation represented the parents there. They did a fine job, met with success in Hartford, and we're hoping that they'll be able to do the same thing for the statewide law. That would be phenomenal. So we will check back for a statewide update out of Connecticut, probably in our Next episode, but moving on to the to our neighboring state here in Indiana, our neighboring state of Ohio, which has had its own, shall we say, drama around their long-established school choice program. You know, the facts in this 
we won't even call it a case because it's a it's a recent piece of litigation, but kind of the legislature went back and forth over the fact that the way that they'd written the law would have meant this year a whole bunch more families would have had access to their private school choice program because a lot of hundreds of schools in Ohio were actually deemed failing. And it turned out that lawmakers didn't really like that outcome, so they've been squabbling. Meanwhile, the deadline for parents to apply for EdChoice Ohio, which I should note is not at all related to us, EdChoice, the national nonprofit, but the deadline passed. Lawmakers pretty much kicked the can, and they're still debating what to do with this program. And then recently, the parents actually filed a lawsuit. So what's your, uh, what's your prognostication in Ohio, Leslie? <laughs> well, first, my heart is a little bit broken about Ohio. I grew up in Ohio. So I'm not very happy about what's happening there. If you look at the reports coming out of Ohio, there's a lot of talk about how the, oh, the legislature expanded their choice, their voucher program, but oh, too much. It's too much too fast and it applies to too many schools and too many kids will apply. And then there's been a lot of chatter that, oh, no, it also applies to some high-performing schools. And well, we, we couldn't possibly have that. But all the conversation, though, that's been coming out of the, from, from a lot of the elected officials uh, has been centered around the details, the legislature, the funding, the, the, the law, the words, all of this. There's been very little conversation about what about these parents? So Ohio took the great step of expanding this voucher program, and I might add, that was a bipartisan effort. It was very well done by the Ohio legislature. So kudos to them, kudos. But then suddenly they got a lot of pushback from the usual suspect, from the teachers unions in Ohio, which are very strong. They got tremendous pushback there, and now they're getting a little cold feet. Oh, we can't possibly allow children who are attending a high-performing school to maybe choose a different school. And that's just wrong. I mean, I speak from my own experience. I sent my kids to public schools, the highest-performing public schools in Indiana, and had to pull them out of those schools because they were bad schools? No, because they were the wrong schools for my kids. I really could have used a voucher back at that time. That would have been tremendously helpful. So the, the debate in Ohio, it's just the wrong debate. No one's really talking about what the parents need. But this lawsuit that has been filed, it's, been, it's filed by parents. And these parents who were very excited about having a new opportunity for their kids that now is being taken away, they're willing to stand up and fight for it. That's what that lawsuit is all about. Yeah, so, and that's an amazing thing I'm to for see. for the parents. Yeah, and that's, I mean... They're ticked off, and rightfully yeah. so, because they thought they were going to have a, you know, a hard deadline, the legislature was going to do something, and maybe it was to say that they weren't going to have access you know, if they were in these particular schools. But instead of doing that, they did nothing. And all these parents right. who are looking, I mean, it's February, you're looking to make commitments for the next school year, and That's they right. can't make those decisions. And I think you raise a really good point. I you know, also had my oldest child in public school. She was in a magnet school. Great school. A school that people have a you know, they're on a wait list to get into. Not the right fit for her. So my kids are in private school now, and I also could benefit from a, uh, from some sort of financial assistance, you know. But 
I think that's the point that's always missing in this debate. And it's a hard one to have when you go in and you say, this school is failing, because all schools may have kids in there for whom that school is not meeting their needs. They could be an A school or a five-star school, depending on what state you're in and how your accountability system works, but it might not be the right school for that kid. And, and I think, exactly you know, right. these Ohio parents deserve a lot of credit for, you know, standing up to, you know, stick it to the man, as if you want to say it, Jack Black style. But they, right. they're, they're mad and they, they deserve to have their voices heard. They do. They do. And this, uh, you know, this goes back to our earlier conversation about the Espinoza case in the Supreme Court. I so appreciated that whole debate by the U.S. Supreme Court that was a debate about all children. It, it was right. It was the right debate. It was the right kind of question to be asking, are we helping all children or we're not helping all children? And Ohio should take note from that debate from the U.S. Supreme Court. Think about what you're talking about. It's not about your rules and your regulations and, and the teachers' unions and bureaucracy. This is about these families and these kids. So put the priority focus there. And then I think Ohio will be able to figure this out. But they probably won't figure it out right until they do that, until they put these kids first. Yeah, but hopefully they'll keep coming to the state house and testifying and, yes, and, and talking so. about their stories. So, well, real quick, I know we've got two more, the M's and the N states, if you will. We'll start with the ongoing litigation in the states of Maine and Maryland. And I know there's not a whole lot new there, but uh, you know we're kind of keeping our eye on those cases still as they That's progress. Right. That's right. The main cases before the First Circuit Court of Appeals, it mirrors the Espinoza case. The issue is, is exactly the same. And we're just waiting for a decision out of the First Circuit. We actually expect to see a decision fairly soon. So we'll let you know as soon as we get that decision. In the Maryland case, it was, it was reported that Bethel Christian Academy, who sued the state for kicking them out of the voucher program based on their religious beliefs, that the court had ruled against them and they couldn't prove their case. Well, yeah, sort of, kind of. Uh, that was actually a motions issue. Both sides had filed motions for summary judgment, which is a legal procedure. And the court said no to both of them, and they're proceeding now to, to trial. So that, that case is now moving forward. Excellent. So, yeah, again, we'll keep our eye on Maine and Maryland. And, and then to our last pair of states, the end states, Nevada and North Carolina. Both of which are also a little bit uh, up in the air right now in terms of what uh, their pro their current status of their programs and what the future holds. That's correct. In Nevada, there are two cases. They both involve very bureaucratic technical issues, but in both of those cases, in one case, the tax credit scholarship program, the escalator clause for that program is also tied up in that. In the other one, the repeal of their ESA is tied up in the other case. But in both cases, the school choice programs are not the issue. Rather, they're highly technical issues. So they're same thing in Nevada, like in Maryland. They're going through some procedural matters right now, and both of those cases will proceed. And in North Carolina, it had been on hold for quite some time, but that is an adequacy funding case where just recently the court stepped forward and ordered the legislature in North Carolina to adequately fund education 
they have a, a funding formula proposal that was put together uh, that we're not real fond of. I don't think the legislature is real fond of it either. So I would expect that there's going to be some back and forth between the courts and the state legislature on how they fund schools, how they fund education, and that will, I'm sure, necessarily include their voucher programs and new ESA program in North Carolina as well. That's another one of those cases that will probably go on for a long time, so check back for updates on that as well. Which, uh, you know, I guess is both a good thing and a bad thing because, you know, the cases go on for a really long time and it's not great for families, but at least we're able to stay involved. And again, your work through the Legal Defense and Education Center here at EdChoice has been critical to all of these cases uh, as they as they move forward. And, you know, obviously, next time we get together, we've got a whole bunch of stuff to, to get updates on, a whole bunch of cases. All right. For those of you listening, if you want to get updates more quickly, you can always check our website, edchoice.org. We pretty frequently post state briefs every month, and we post updates on cases as they are happening. Also, you can follow us on social media on all the usual platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Yeah, wow, that was a lot to pack into this <laughs> podcast. So, Leslie, thank you for, for joining me. And uh, on behalf of all of us here at EdChoice, I'm Jen Wagner, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, <laughs> Jen.